I don't use the word legend very often, but I do use it today, and I use it because the guest on the show today is Mr. Seth Godin. That's right. One of the most popular episodes of all time was uh, an earlier time when we had Seth on the show, and guess what? He's back. Uh, it's been a long time coming, maybe more than two years, uh, and he's, he, uh, I mean, I would have Seth on every other day if he would be willing to do it. He's very impressive with his time, but he's got a new point of view. He, he's collected what I think, well, first of all, if we want to unpack some of um, his accolades, I think he's 18-time New York Times slash international best-selling author. Um, he's the founder of numerous startups. You may know he's got a, a, an online learning um, experience called the Alt NBA, which is one of you know it's 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 one of a kind. It really is a special, and this is coming from someone who you know we built Creative Live. I think Creative Live is also one of a kind. It's unique and incredible and and empowering. The MBA is is very different than Creative. That's right, the Alt MBA, very different from Creative Live but an incredible force of nature, um, as is Seth. So what Seth is, in addition to being an entrepreneur, an author, and what I've found is sort of like a guru, like a, a, a shaman to so many creators and entrepreneurs that I know, is Seth is one of the most brilliant marketing minds of our time. Unquestionably, like, don't pass go, you have to agree with me, he's brilliant. And his new book is called This is marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. If, if ever there has been a guest who can speak directly to that little voice in your head that says, I'm not X or Y or I don't know how to do this or that, Seth, Seth knows that voice and he has a, a response, he has an answer, and the answer makes sense, it's valuable and it's actionable. And that's what this episode is about. Um, we cover a lot of ground here, and this, I believe, this book called This Is Marketing, it's not an accident. His, his other books, they, they do deep dives on individual concepts, like trust, for example, or um, being original, like Purple Cow. He's got, uh, again, so many, so many books have been in the marketplace. What this is, to me, is this is like a marketing Bible. This is his wisdom packed in one particular place. And I'll just give you a couple nuggets, for example, he wants us to know how small can we target? How, how can we make this for the, make something, whatever it is you're making, whether it's a photograph, a design, an album, how can you make it for the smallest viable audience? And this is just an example of how Seth thinks. It's like takes common wisdom and flips it on his head, not about how can we make this thing go global, because what he knows is that in the particular is the universal. How can you make it for a small tribe of people such that when they experience it, they're willing to tell their friends? And that's just one, this is the tip of the spear, my friends, and there's so much more behind it. I'm gonna get out of the way. Seth is one of the most elegant, articulate people um, I know, and he's also just a pure joy. I can't wait to have you listen. Um, please give him a shout out on, uh, on the socials. He's uh, at Seth Godin pretty much everywhere, I think. Uh, but for now, I'm gonna moonwalk out of here, get out your way, and enjoy this episode with Mr. Seth Godin. Oh, before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. 
If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Thanks, man. Thank Thanks you so me. much. Been looking forward to it. Oh, well, I confess we were um, talking a little bit before the camera started rolling. Um, we have done another interview a couple years ago uh, and I, it was super engaging for me. I personally have watched it a couple times to take the nuggets out of it that you have put into your books. Um, I just devoured this. I got the galley. Thank you for overnighting it. I don't know, maybe uh, I forget Stephanie or someone yeah, she's great. overnighted it and um, just crushed this thing as I was flying across the country to come sit with you today. Uh, this to me feels different than a lot of your other books. Um, you know, books like The Purple Cow, there's 18 of them, so I won't list them. But um, I felt like those all took on very specific things about marketing, about um, audience, about engagement. This to me is like a Bible. This to me is like you put it all into one place. So was that intentional? Am I reading that into it or is that intentional? Like you, you packaged it all into, to me, this is like... Yeah, I don't think that was the intent. It's what happened. The intent was... We started out with something and yeah. No, I, I spend a lot of time, I don't do any consulting, but I spend time with people I care about helping them achieve where they're trying to go. And it tends to be something that many people would call a marketing problem. And to help them, I built this online seminar called The Marketing Seminar. 6,000 people have taken it. And the cool thing, as you know from doing the same thing, is you can watch what's resonating, what's changing people. Yeah. So it's 50 lessons, it takes 100 days, and I'm taking notes and adjusting it. And then I realize some people aren't gonna devote that kind of time. Yeah. I have something I wanna teach them. And that's what led to the book. And as I was writing the book, I realized it's really a book about how we market to ourselves about the story we tell ourselves, about our sufficiency, our worth, our assertions, our contribution. Yeah. And so I had to lay that whole groundwork out. And then, on top of it, talk about how other human beings hear us and see us. Yeah. So there are no pages that say, Tuesday afternoons are the best time to tweet. And there's nothing that says, here's how you make SEO work better. Yeah. Because those are tiny, tiny tactics. Yeah. And they don't separate winners from losers. What matters, is doing work that matters for people who care. And a lot of the people who are watching this want to do work that matters. Yeah. But we trip ourselves up because we think that we then have to become an evil marketer and spam the world. And I don't think that's true. 
Well, you've laid out a very convincing case, um, and there's lots of places where we could start this conversation. I don't want to just talk about the book. I got some Absolutely. questions for you, yeah. but I, I do want to like get right into it because it's um, having just consumed it. It's it's very prescient and very very fresh for me. But talk about the smallest audience. So that's probably the most controversial idea for the first pass through the book. Yeah, you've may have heard about lean entrepreneurship and you should make the minimum viable product. MVPs, they call them. Right? And mm-hmm. the, you know, if you look back to the early courses you launched, you wouldn't launch one of those today. <laughs> but you need to put it into the world, not because it's lousy, because it wasn't lousy, but because it's primitive. But what primitive means is I solved a small problem yeah. for somebody and I can see how it works. And that has been proven to work over and over again. Yeah. Well, in marketing, I want to argue that we've all been trained to pitch the largest possible audience. Because we're Total addressable market. We, yeah. There's all these acronyms exactly. that talk about how you're supposed to only think big and words like scale, total addressable market, they drive me crazy. But Exactly, yeah. gross rating points, gross, yeah. right? What if we did the opposite? What if we got specific? What if we said, if there were 100 people I changed, 200 people I taught, 1,000 people who were my patrons, what if we could do that? Would it be enough? It wouldn't be magic, wouldn't be a home run, but would it be enough? If the answer is yes, then we become specific and obsessed with that. Because if you can't pull that off, yeah. well, then you're not an artist. But if you can pull that off, you know what they'll do? They'll tell their friends. Because it's so extraordinary, yeah. they have to share it. And then it gets bigger and bigger. But we begin by having the guts to be specific as opposed to hiding behind infinity. So you said you got to make that enough. Enough for what? Enough to get started? Enough for life? Enough for, like, what's the enough for? Give me the... Exactly. So there are two kinds of enough. The first enough is, is it enough for me to make my next piece of work? Is it enough to fuel this journey? Because artists can be insatiable. Mm -hmm. They can want more because they think they have something to give. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But then the second enough, which I don't talk about in the book, which I talk about a lot on my blog, is... What happens to your happiness? What happens to your craft when you define whatever you have as enough for now? Because if you can live in sufficiency, it's way easier to be generous because you're not drowning. Drowning people don't offer life jackets to other people. But the act of offering a life jacket to somebody else, that connection that comes from that actually supports our craft. Mm. But we have to tell ourselves a story of sufficiency, not I'm done. Yeah. But I did that, this happened, now what? Yes, I think there's something about, um, it feels completely, the way you just phrase it, it feels completely different than a minimum viable product because you're just, you're, on a, you're trying to give people that in that small subset an experience, an 11 experience exactly. out of 10. Exactly right. And it feels, to me, they're like tours of duty. I don't like the military analogies really, but it's like you get in, you, you, you did a tour of duty, you gave them what they needed at that moment, and then you're learning. And it's not, you know, I've always had this debate inside of, of Creative Live or when I've looked at help, you know, other founders and friends who are building products, you know, you, you hear this MVP, and if you look at a triangle of like the bottom is like, it actually does what it's supposed to, and then the middle is like, it's got some nice polish, and the top is like, it's extraordinary. Everybody tries to slice through the bottom middle section like it does a little bit of something which then there's no emotion around it. There's no, right. so I hate minimum viable products. Well, I, but that's a wrong definition of MVP. That's what people yeah. are telling you an MVP is, but right. they're wrong. They, they're slicing it the wrong way. Correct. 
Yeah, I, I don't remember. I saw a diagram somewhere. And so the fact that I don't love um, MVP helped, helped me really get into this very quickly. But I think that the audience, the idea of a small audience is it feels risky to people. That's right. And is, is it just a, is it a thing you have to get over or is this a, a risk that you have to sell inside of your organization? Like what's, how, how do we think about it? How do we give people who are considering doing this, how do we give them tools yeah, this to is, persevere? This is brilliant. You should edit my next book. These are brilliant questions. Okay. There's a difference between feels risky and is risky. The riskiest Wait, say that, say that there's a difference between feels and is, okay. Right? Okay. The riskiest thing you can do is make average stuff for average people and pitch it to the masses. Mm -hmm. The ri riskiest thing you can do is say, we're gonna be the next banana republic. Right? <laughs> There's just like not a lot of chance that yeah. that's gonna work. The safest thing you can do is say there are eight people at table four. If I can go bring magic to table four, even though I've got a long shift ahead of me, if I act like it's there the only chance those people are ever gonna have, because it is, to have the experience of a lifetime here, right now, that's the safest thing you can do. Not worry about the people who haven't even clicked on open table, not worry about the people who are thinking about what restaurant to go to. Table four. What's happening at table four? Because if you can change the life even this much, yeah. they'll come back and they'll bring their friends. And when you think about the growth of my projects, of your projects, isn't that what they're about? Right? Like the, the brilliant insight, I was telling my wife about the brilliant insight of, you know, here it is, is live, for the f people came for free, great, and now it's going to cost money. How can that make sense? Well, because the people you changed are now your sales force. Yeah. Right? And so does it feel risky? You bet. Why does it feel risky? It feels risky because you have to make an assertion, because you have to go to people and say, I made this. And if you say to a special person, I made this, and they say, I hate it, it hurts. Yeah. Whereas if you just stand on the street corner and say to everyone, I made this, there's so many bystanders, it, you, you feel safe. Yeah. So what I'm pushing people to do, because the internet feels vast. Yeah. It's not a mass medium. It's a micro medium. It's the smallest medium ever created next to a billion other small media. So you don't get to be in front of the internet. When I was at Yahoo, the homepage was sold out two years in advance. Because amateur marketers with money say, let's buy the internet, buy the homepage. But it wasn't you worth anything. Those takeovers and stuff. I right. remember that. I it was remember worth that. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was way better to be in front of the right person on the right day for the right reason to say, this thing, instant yes. And if you can't build an instant yes, then all the spamming of your friends and family isn't going to make it any better. So you talked to, I, I loved how you framed it, which is, it's, it's actually the least risky thing you can do is focus on one table. Um, but you have to believe like somewhere in the back of your head, you're letting fires, other fires burn. Sure. You know, cause like you said, somewhere someone's having a problem on open table somewhere. I love the restaurant analogy, by the way, you know, I think a lot of us have been servers at some points in our lives so we can relate. And you know, you, you've got table six, which they just got sat and you haven't given them their drinks. But the, the willingness to focus on table four, is it table four? I'm already lost, yeah. I think it was table, table four. four. <laughs> okay. We love table four. We love table four. But the, the willingness to focus on them, when you put it as you have, it's unequivocally the right thing to do. And then the challenge that, the next challenge that I see. Exactly, is what, how, what are your other resources? Is, yeah, what next? So I did, I was super excited and I did a great job with, with table four. Does, but now does doing a good job with table four take time or does it take love? 
And that's the distinction. So most of us are super lucky. We don't do physical labor anymore. We mm -hmm. don't dig a ditch for a living. Yeah. We don't work in an overheated nuclear power plant fixing gaskets, right? Yeah. We do emotional labor. And emotional labor is also exhausting, but it's yeah. different. So you have seen in the last 12 hours a receptionist or a frontline person coasting through their day. They're not getting paid enough. They're not led well. Yeah. They have bad conditions. So they're not exerting emotional labor. The question is, in the same amount of time, could they have made a difference for you? A flight attendant, a waiter, a senior vice president of talent relations. Go anywhere on the spectrum. Yeah. What does it mean to look someone in the eye and say, I'm really glad you're here? Because that exchange didn't take any longer than your table's over there. Yeah. Right? Uh -huh. So what I'm not, I'm not arguing that we need to make every restaurant the Union Square Cafe. What I'm arguing is that the sense of sprezzatura, this Italian word for effortless care, right? That I, I'm here for you, that takes emotional labor. Just as much emotional labor as making a painting that isn't like everybody else's painting. In both cases, we're having to wrestle with that other thing inside of us, call it heart, yeah. if you want. That is why most conversations about marketing tend to be about tactics because now I don't have to expose my fear. Right. And that's not where I'm going. I'm trying to help people see there's more opportunity than ever, but you're not gonna find it by learning tactics. You're gonna find it by marketing to yourself and believing that the world deserves what you have to say. So I wanna hinge uh, uh, my next question around the point you just made about seeing. So give us the, the connection between seeing and being seen. Right. I think it's a it's a uh, it's a really central point of the book. I think it's it might even be the subtitle. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Oh yeah. You can't be seen until you learn to see. So help help me understand exactly what you mean by that. And I think I understand that you don't want it to be too tactical. But what is that? What precipitates when you understand that you can't be seen until you see? Right. What what precipitates from that? So toddlers have a deservedly bad rap because. <laughs> They're selfish narcissists, <laughs> me, 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 all the time. The mm -hmm. toddler never comes up to you and says, how was your day, right? Because the toddler just wants to be seen and fed. Yeah. Marketers are like toddlers in that they've worked hard to make something and now me, bring it on. I want more clicks, I want more page views, I want better Google traffic, mm -hmm. right? The thing is that selfishness cannot stand in a world where we have lots of choices because if I can, bestow my attention on anybody. Why should I bestow it on a toddler? I don't need to, I'll just go over here. Yeah. So what it means to see before being seen is to say that person I seek to serve, what's the story in their head? What's the narrative in their head? There's this great new word called sonder, which means realizing that other people also have a noise in their head the way you have a noise in your head. And for most of us, that's a revelation. Yeah. You mean other people have a noise and it's not the same as my noise? So once you accept that there's that noise in their head, yeah. that they don't know what you know, that they don't want what you want, that they don't believe what you believe, you can learn to see them for who they are and where they're going. If you can do that, you know what they're gonna do? See you in return. But we have to go first. And particularly when we're not a Fortune 500 company, when we're the sole practitioner, small folks like you and me yeah. and the artists, that's all we got. But it's yeah. enough, it's more than enough because everyone is 
thirsty for that. Yeah. And in the Alt MBA, we spend an enormous amount of time teaching people to see, yeah. to see the world as it is, to see that other people have their own narrative. And once you gain that empathy, you can serve better. I, so that makes a ton of sense to me. And I'm, I'm, as I think hopefully everyone who's watching and listening, they're like thinking about how this applies to them. So I'm sitting here doing the same thing, selfishly trying to create a conversation here. It's but not like, selfish at all, that's why I, I came. Okay, yeah. I'm trying to like learn and process. And I, I remember writing a blog post some time ago and it was called, Stop Trying to Get Everybody to Like Your Work. And it's, I think, been shared 18 or 20,000 times or something. Deservedly. And what I realized at some point is that if you're so busy trying to get everybody to like your work, when the reality is, is, is just do the math for a moment and like how many people do you actually need with, especially if you're an independent artist, a solopreneur or something like that, how many people do you actually need to make your thing successful. And what I, what I learned from you is, it's not even successful. How do you like do tour of duty number one? Like, what is that number? And when you realize how small that number was. It's even worse though, because if you try to please the person in the back, right. you're going to stop pleasing the people you care about. So yeah. I, I gave a speech in Mexico six months ago, and I'm ashamed at what I did. And I'm, I'm saying the story out loud so I can tell it to myself. So it's in a convention center, worst place to give a speech. It's simultaneous translation, worst conditions to give a speech. And it's 2,000 people. And I'm up there and I'm doing my work and I feel like I'm doing it pretty well. And in the third row is a woman on her cell phone. She's not listening to her cell phone. She's talking. Oh. She's talking on her cell phone in the third row while I'm up there doing my thing. And I just... I, my mentor Zig Ziglar taught me not to do this, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I focused all my energy on this woman and I kept interjecting references to social media and how we can't put it down and to hang up the phone. I'm She's getting, talking louder. Right, I got, no, keep me quiet please, I'm on the phone here. And I know that I deprived the people in that room who were there for me mm -hmm. of my best self. How dare I do that? And. It's even worse when there isn't someone on the phone, you're just imagining. Mm -hmm. So that when you're sitting there typing or drawing or you're imagining the troll, you're imagining the non-believer and what they're gonna say. Maybe it's your mother-in-law, maybe, yeah. who knows? And then you start averaging it out to make them happy. You start dulling it down to make them happy. No, 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 wrong. Do the opposite. How can you make them even more unhappy? How can you make it even less of what they want? So if you're a contemporary artist, don't make it more like Norman Rockwell, because Norman Rockwell already did Norman Rockwell. Yeah. He's taken. Make it more like you, and the person, the morally safers or whoever who hated contemporary art, not for you, don't even come in the building. Yeah. Not for you, warning sign, this is not for you. And as soon as you have the freedom and the, the confidence to do that, yeah. your work keeps getting better. It's, it takes guts, though. Yeah. I think this is, you know, like you have to be willing to let things burn and, and part of, especially for new folk. Oh, actually, I can't even say that. Like, at, at every, every table that I've ever sat at, at a bunch of different levels, that is not the commonly held belief. Because right. there's a desire to, to, to please. Plus, if, we gave the critics a microphone. We, yeah. They didn't used to have one, now they do. Right. So, if I'm gonna, I'm gonna reference Brene Brown, who, you know, she keeps a very short list of people, about six people on a little teeny piece of paper, folded up in her wallet, she brought it out, she showed it to me before, um, which is a great, I think it's a great uh, way of thinking. 
which the, this is what I care about. These are the people that I care about what they say. And if you're not in the arena, you're not on this list, I don't care. And what I took from your book is that if we can take a similar mentality and focus it on how we talk about our products, our services, and who we are, yep. that we're going to be infinitely better off. Happier and more of service to the people we're trying to serve. Right? So, if you run a nonprofit and yep. you're trying to raise $100,000, who is the best person to raise $100,000 from? Someone who's never given money to charity or someone who gives money to charity? It's pretty clear, yeah. right? Okay, among people who give money to charity, do you want to call on people who donate to the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, and you know one other old school charity? Or do you want to go to people who are eagerly on the front lines? Well, it depends what kind of charity, right? So you're doing work that matters for people who care. Yeah. And they demonstrate how much they care through their actions. So find people who are already acting like people who care and make something for them that they can't help but be glad you made. Smallest possible audience. Viable, because possible is one, mm. you can't live on one. So mm. what's the viable? What's the one I can live on that will get me far enough to do it again? And you know, my friend Brian Koppelman talks about the question he gets asked the most is how do I get an agent? Because the mindset <laughs> yeah. is my agent will help me get picked. Yeah. Well, the way you get an agent is actually doing work being so, so that busy. an agent yeah. will call you. Yeah, totally, being so busy. So that an agent yeah. will find you. Yeah. And the way that happens is, you make a YouTube video, it doesn't work. You make another YouTube video, it spreads a little. You make another YouTube video, 500 people watch it. Now you're onto something. Your next one maybe will only reach 5,000 people, but it will change them. It will change the way they see the way cameras work, whatever it is. Oh, now the phone rings. Because you did something worth seeking out. How do we get people I'm saying maybe people refers to me or someone who might be listening. How do we, how do we um, lean into this concept? We, we under, I, I, under, I can understand intellectually that, hey, as soon as I make something for everyone, I've actually made it for nobody. I understand the, the math, but actually doing that thing and it's sort of an inward journey. Yep. How, how do we become, how do we make that a habit when it is, Certainly not intuitive. Yep. It's not what you've been told. This is this information is not in other books. It's about total addressable market. How do you make a product that scales? Exactly. You know, I mean, and and I I know and understand and respect those people who built those huge scale businesses, the Airbnbs, the LinkedIn's. That they've been on the show. Sure. But so how do you how do you reconcile that we have to make something small and individual and unique and so cut against the grain? Try this trick. This is what I'm looking for. I, I tricked you into giving me a trick. <laughs> yes. Think about the best teacher you ever had. This teacher did not use test and measure compliance, standardized testing. And this teacher was not the best teacher everyone ever had. It's just the best teacher you had. What happens if instead of thinking about yourself as a marketer, you think about yourself as a teacher? And you are teaching not everyone, but people who are enrolled in the journey where you are going. And I would argue Airbnb and LinkedIn are perfect examples of businesses that did not try to be everything to everyone. They yeah. tried to be important to a very small group of people. And those students of theirs who were in the early classes were said, oh, teach me about this. Teach me what it's like to be an Airbnb member. Teach me what it's like to have these kinds of interactions in LinkedIn. And as students, you didn't have to yell at them because they were enrolled in your journey. And yeah. as a teacher, you're thinking, oh, 
that leap was a little too fast. Let me go back and do this a little bit slow. Let me find out where that person's holding back. And once you realize that you're a teacher, a generous teacher, not the kind who's yelling at people, but a generous teacher, everything that I'm talking about suddenly fits into place. I think I kind of shot myself in the foot because as soon as I'd asked it and you started talking, I was like, wait a minute. So I had Joe from Airbnb on and he was like, you know, what they did is they originally, it was for, they rented their apartment and literally put air mattresses on the floor at South by Southwest because they knew that the city would be sold out and they needed to make money to make rent. So talk about small. <laughs> like, and then ultimately what, what uh, tipped was they came, they opened the market in New York and they came here and they individually, the founders and a friend and photographed the insides of Airbnbs because they realized that the photographs were very unappealing. Yep. Very non-scalable. Very, I think they did 20 in a weekend. Exactly. And that was the thing that Joe credits as tipping the business. Right, which That's leads to this next cool idea yeah. as you scale. Right. And you have done this masterfully, which is people like us do things like this. That sentence is what marketing is. People like us do things like this, establishing the culture. So if you're a Supreme fan, that's, you know when to go to the store. You know which one hat to wear and which hat you're not gonna wear anymore. You know what to sell and what not to sell, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That if you ride the Staten Island Ferry every day to work, you know what people like us do when we commute. The rules are very clear. Where did they come from? They're not you know, laws of yeah. physics. They're just the rules in this moment. Yeah. So people like us, contemporary artists who are working in 2020, what do people like us do? Where do we show? What is our format? People like us do things like this. So who gets to invent those rules? The cool thing is we do. Yeah. So you're either a victim of those rules or you're following those rules or you are the inventor of those rules. And because of the way I came up as a teacher, as someone who helped run a summer camp, inventing cultures. This is what we do. We use expressions like this, not expressions like that. And when I was running my internet company, there were 50 of us in one big room, and there was one person who had a bad temper. And I knew that because he had status, if he persisted, it would be okay to have a bad temper in my company. And the culture was brand new. And I took him aside and I said, if you lose your temper again in the office, there's no warning, you're just fired. And he knew I was serious and he never did it again. He needed to leave the room, then he could lose his temper all he wanted when he wasn't around us. Mm -hmm. But people like us, we do things like this. And that's why it's different when you walk through the halls of IBM than the walk through the halls of Microsoft. That wasn't an accident, someone yeah. picked. Yeah. People like us do things like this. And you get to do that with your work. And as you build your, call them the tribe, the community, whatever you want, you're the one who's determined what those are if you can make assertions and if you can own it and then we get back to the fear. Who am I? Well, you're you. That's why we picked you to go do this. That is like, I think that's a major unlock for a lot of folks. And let's go back to the, to the individual creators, the entrepreneurs, people who want to start something for whom deciding there's this fear. I remember this fear in my own work that, that, but I want to show a portfolio that has everything in it because sure. when I'm showing a prospective buyer, they're going to look at it and say, oh, he shoots, you know, not just action sports, he also shoots puppies. Right. And because I want, I need the money. 
Yep. I need to, you know, but of course I quickly realized that this is sort of poison because this is nobody. This is, yeah, I do everything is 12, for everybody. This is $12 an hour. Yeah. So let's do the freelancer riff because it's important. Freelancers okay. are different than entrepreneurs okay. and most of the people watching this are freelancers. Yep. I'm a freelancer. I like being a freelancer. Nothing wrong with being a freelancer. Yeah. But stop pretending you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> freelancers get paid when they work. They don't build an asset bigger than themselves, right? Okay. So I don't have a building. Okay, great. You're a freelancer. How do you move up as a freelancer? The answer is, can't work more hours, you need better clients. Better clients challenge you to do better work. They respect your good work. They pay you more, they tell other people. Your good work spreads the word. That's how you move up. Get better clients. So if you go to people and say, I will do what you want, what do you need? That's the kind of client you're gonna get. But if you go to a client and say, I have a point of view and I am leading, the only clients you'll get are ones who are, have a point of view and are leading. Is that who you want to be? So will it be much harder for you to get those clients at the beginning? For sure, that's a dip. Yeah. But the ones who get through it and get to the other side, right? what you want are people in the world saying, get me Chase, and someone says, Chase is busy, they say, okay, get me someone like him. That's what you want to have happen. Yep. But first you've got to have that first sentence be true about you. And if yeah. you're the one who does sports photography and puppies, no one's gonna ask for you. For sure. I, there's something also about, let's go back to the story we need to tell ourselves to believe that we're good enough and we're worthy. I think that's a, for, again, we're gonna st we'll stay on freelancers or, or independent creators. There's a, I'm not worth it, I haven't earned it. Um, I am, um, I had plenty of advantage. I grew up in a safe home. I, I don't have this, this brutal artistic struggle in my history. I don't have anything to say, I don't have a point of view. How am I gonna be, you know, how am I gonna break through? And what would you tell someone, because I believe that of the 10, if there's 10 people listening or watching right now, that eight and a half of them yeah. have that feeling. Yeah. So what, what do you tell them? Yeah, okay, me too, that's a good. What, what do you tell them? Oh. The first thing I'd say is you're probably not good enough. And no one is but you could get better. And if you keep getting better, then sooner or later, you'll be better. And that's the journey. So at the beginning, we're going to people who have a problem. And we're going, not in our head, but trying to get into their head, what is your problem? Your problem is you have a deadline. Your problem is you have to tell your boss you got this problem solved. Your problem is you feel insufficient. Your problem is the last three people flaked out, blah, blah, blah. But you know what your problem isn't? Your problem isn't that you can't find a freelancer who is the world's best at blank because that's actually not part of your narrative at all. That may be the freelancer's narrative yeah. is that I'm insufficient and incompetent, but that's not what the client's problem is. So if you present to the client as this person who will make promises and keep them, who will exert emotional labor to be easy to work with or difficult to work with if that's what the client's working for, right? But you make an assertion about what role you are playing as their teacher in that moment. If that's the story they need to hear, you are doing them a service. And that service is just like the service you look for when you go out for a nice dinner. When you go out for a nice dinner, the chef isn't saying to himself, I'm better than David Chang. The chef is just saying, I'm making a promise. And if you want this dinner for $24, here it is. And if you don't want my point of view about food, there's an Ethiopian restaurant right down the street. 
But in order to be a productive professional, we have to present to the world and say, I will make this for you. And then keep the promise. And if you want to get better at it tomorrow, please go get better at it tomorrow. But you can't wait until you're perfect before you can present to the world because you're never going to get there. That goes back to the non-MVP MVP. You want to put something out in the world. Exactly. Make it better. Make the thing that you do, make it, make it an 11 out of a 10 and then make another course or another thing. So when you set out to write this, was this, was this a project that you said, all right, I need to write the definitive thing. I need to, it seems, again, I, I opened with this. It, it seems different to me than your other books because it's got, it's, it puts its arms around more big ideas. There's not a lot of tactic, as you said, and I'm going to try and get you to get tactical and you're, you're going to resist. It's you, all good. You, yeah. But did you set out to write that book where you put your arms around... I mean, the, the title is like, this is marketing. Is That's a very bold, like, okay, it's right here, you know? Like, uh, so I'm not good at making up stories that aren't true. So my true story is this. I did that with Lynchpin. Lynchpin is the best book I've ever written. I can't write a better book than Lynchpin. I spent a year of my life trying to craft a testament on paper that I could not deliver in any other form. And I experienced what that felt like. And I don't know if I could do it again. Maybe I could find a reason to care enough mm -hmm. to go through that pain. But in this case, what I'm trying to do, as I'm often trying to do, is deliver value in a format that's appropriate for the value I'm trying to deliver. So in the marketing seminar, I said, if I can get 6,000 people to come on this journey with me every day for months, I can change them using new teaching cool. technologies we built and all that. And it works. But it's arrogant for me to say, that's the only way to learn marketing. Because a lot of people say, I don't have that kind of time. I'm not willing yep. to put myself into that position. Yep. Well, there's this 500-year-old medium that has magical powers. And its biggest magical power is that you can hand it to your friends really cheap. And that you can all go on the journey at the same time. Your colleagues can all read it at the same time. So I haven't written a full-length book in more than five years because the publishing industry has its own issues. Yep. And I said to myself, wait a minute, I have this nail, I have this hammer, what am I, why am I, I'll be a hypocrite. I'll go yeah. back into the book publishing world because I care to serve people who want to read it in this format. And I am fully aware that most people on earth, 99.9, .9, will not read this book because they don't want to read a book or because they don't want to read about a book about this, fine. But for the people who want to go on this journey and bring people around them with them, this was my best effort to do that. And so when I read it as a book and write it as a book, I'm not under the illusion that this is To Kill a Mockingbird. I wish I could write To Kill a Mockingbird. What I've tried to do instead is share the way I care about people who are doing this work that matters. And I'm really hoping that people who do the other kind of work won't read this book because I don't want them to use some of these approaches to manipulate people. We have to own yeah. the work we do. And so I'm giving people a toolkit and I'm saying, please, do work you're proud of. Is this, a, is this an attempt to capture people who wouldn't otherwise take the course? Well, I don't think capture is the right word. I, okay. I, what happens serve. is serve, okay. exactly. Okay. So I'm trying to teach people that's I'm learning. learning, I'm slow, yeah. but I'm learning. Because right? you will soon discover that 
uh, writing a book is a not very smart financial endeavor, right? <laughs> I'm never gonna stand on the corner and try to sell my books. It's, mm. doesn't, it's not worth my time. Yeah. What I am happy to say to people is, if you're doing work that matters, and I've tried really hard to signal everywhere in this book, that's who it's for, then I'll, I'll tell you everything I know for 20 bucks. Trust is as scarce as attention. Yeah. I just, uh, for those who are listening and not watching, I just read the name of, uh, this is the name of a a chapter, chapter 18. Explain that. So attention used to be strip mined by the big marketers. So if you're over 30 years old, you remember network TV. (laughs) And network TV was a bargain for 40 years. You always made money on the TV ads you ran, always. And then cable came and then the internet came and suddenly, attention is no longer a bargain because there are more people trying to buy it, but they're not making any new attention. There are more choices, but they're not making any new attention. So the race for attention is characterized last 20 years. That's what Purple Cow is about. Yep. Okay, so now we've got that understood. But then trust has been strip mined where someone says, oh, I'm in your email box. You sort of know my brand name or you're in the store. Buyer beware because I can rip you off once but I can't rip you off twice. And so what we've done is taught a billion people not to trust. We've taught a billion people to think everyone's lying, a billion people to be hesitant. Yeah. So if you can earn attention through permission, through the privilege of having a newsletter or a broadcast like this. Or subscribing to someone's YouTube channel, the case exactly. nice that example you gave. Exactly. And you can be trusted. Everything else takes care of itself. Done, done. So let's go down the rabbit hole of attention a little bit more because that's, I think that's what we feel like we're always competing for in this day and age. Um, is it, how, how do you think about attention? Because I'm trying to think about a small audience, like what's the, the smallest viable audience? Right. And then attention, attention seems like this big thing that you need to get a lot of people Point, you need to get people, you need to get people right. I'm devil's advocate a little yes. bit, but. No, like, you're setting it up beautifully. Okay. If you have a funnel view of the world, you need a million people to get 10,000 people to get 20 people, right? Okay. But if you have the smallest viable audience view of the world, your classroom has 26 people in it. They are eager to be there. If you didn't show up, they'd be angry. 26 people, that's not a funnel, that's a classroom. <laughs> that's magical. So yeah. Banksy doesn't have to go do a media tour. Right? Banksy doesn't need a funnel. Banksy's Banksy. And the people who care about Banksy follow Banksy. He doesn't even want them to follow him sometimes. And that is where you want to go as an artist, is that your work matters enough that people will choose to pay attention. Right? Jerry Garcia didn't have to do a sponsorship deal with Dove or Axe deodorant, right? (laughs) He was Jerry Garcia. People lived in a bus to follow him around. Now, please don't say, but I'm not Banksy and I'm not Jerry because their genes are the same as yours. This is not about God-given talent. This is about caring enough to change a small group of people. And it doesn't have to be very many. You know, the the initial years when the dead was really becoming the dead, they grossed a couple hundred thousand bucks on the road. It wasn't huge amounts of money. Yeah. It wasn't huge numbers of people. But the, the song lives on 
because in that moment, an exchange was made between people who wanted to be in the room and musicians who wanted to be in the room. And what's worth noting is they had only one top 40 record their entire career, even though they were one of the top 10 grossing live bands for decades. And the one record they had almost ruined them because it brought the wrong people to the show. That's fascinating to think of it like that. Brought the wrong people to the show. Yep, that's when the violence started showing up and the drugs got out of hand because the people who came for Touch of Grey were outsiders and they didn't get the joke. I'm reminded by, uh, by that story of a friend of mine, I don't know, he's a New Yorker, maybe a mutual friend, uh, Brandon Stanton, who created the Humans of New York. Yeah, I don't know him, but everyone okay. says he's yeah, he, just... He's incredible. And what I love about his sort of origin story, without going into the details, he was a bond trader, failed, lost his job in Chicago, moved here, lived, like with the goal of the, being in control of how he spent his time, not how much money he made. Beautiful. It's, so it's a beautiful you know, setup. And then he tells this great story uh, about how his first sort of like and his second like. And it's hard to think now of someone who, the second they put out a book, it goes to literally the very top of the list. It stays there for several weeks because he's in an audience of 25 or 30 million people who buy anything that he puts out. And it's very hard to think of this, and that's why he tells this story of, here's a photograph of the first photo I ever posted. It has one, actually it had one comment and no likes. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> the person who commented did, couldn't even be bothered to like it. <laughs> exactly, it's an extra click and I'm tired. But it's, I think it's hard for people to believe or to, um, I think intellectually you can understand it, but emotionally it's very hard to believe that going from zero to one is a win. Yeah. And then from one to two and two to three, and that that's where actually your, if your, your focus is really on that group, because you just don't see how that, it's sort of like compounding interest. You just, what is it if you gave someone a, if you, if you gave someone... Double the pennies. Yeah, double yeah. the pennies. It takes starting, a month to make a million dollars. Yeah, it takes a month to make a million dollars, or would you rather have some other big number? So is this, is, is your book, are we trying to just put an end to that and you feel like that's the stake that you're trying to put in the ground? Is like, stop trying to think big, you have to start small. And is that the, is that the, 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 the core of this book? Um, I would, I think that it, it sits in a sort of a trio or a quartet of ideas. Okay. The, the idea of big is challenging. So what, if you talk to someone who admires art, and you mention Amanda Palmer, they'll say that the music she's created, the footprint she's made, she ran the most successful music Kickstarter in history. What they don't realize is when she was in the Dresden Dolls, she got kicked off her label because there were only 20,000 people who were following her work and buying her record. And when she did her Kickstarter, the most successful Kickstarter in history, she had 20,000 people. So it's not millions. Yeah. It's 20,000 makes you Amanda Palmer. That's yeah. all, right? So don't sacrifice your work for a big number because guess what? You probably won't get the big number. You'll just have sacrificed your work. And number two is the big number isn't going to fuel your work. Your work is going to fuel your work and the people you're teaching. Yeah. But next to that idea, which we haven't talked about yet, is two ideas that sit next to each other. The first is status roles, which is super important when yeah. we try to understand the story someone is telling themselves. 
The short version comes from Keith Johnstone and works in theater, but it works everywhere. Who eats lunch first? When two animals meet in the jungle, who's going to eat lunch first? Who's up, who's down? When two characters meet in The Godfather, who's going to move up, who's going to move down? Status roles. They're everywhere. When you get on the bus, who's going to sit, who's going to stand? At the art gallery, why did someone just pay a million dollars for this painting at this, at you know, Mary Boone, but the same painting on the street corner couldn't have sold for a hundred? What did they buy? Looking for status roles. Once you see them, you can't unsee them. And you can play with, are you trying to sell to people who are moving up? Are you trying to sell to people who are eager to move down? Surprisingly, there's a market for that. Are you trying to sell to people who are just working hard to stay where they are? Right? So, you know, when the fall uh, fashion stuff comes out, why do people run to buy fall fashion? They don't have any clothes? Obviously, they have clothes. <laughs> but they're trying to maintain their status. And if they don't have the new clothes, their status will go down. Next to that is this issue of, are we measuring affiliation? Who are we with? Who is like us? Where do we stand with them? Or trying to measure dominance. Who are we above? So professional wrestling is a competition of dominance. And that's all they do is manipulate who's up and who's down status-wise. And if you're a fan of Hulk or whoever it is on top, that makes you feel good. Affiliation is at the parade, who's marching side by side, arm in arm. So one of the challenges we have as creators mm -hmm. is temperamentally, we're affiliators. Temperamentally, we want to be in sync. Oh, everyone's wearing a black turtleneck? I want a better wear What do you mean temperamentally? Without, before we get to our craft, okay. we think well, about before the Before we even start, we, we haven't even started yet. Now we're, yeah. look, we're just looking around. We're, right, the we're, the kind, we're not a pro wrestler kind, who did I beat today? Yeah. We're a, I'm part of a crew yeah. kind of person. But then when we do our work, when we do our work, we have to be willing to break from the system. Mm -hmm. We have to do something that hasn't been done yet. It's not people like us do things like this yet. First, it's just, I do things like this. And if you want to affiliate with me, you're going to do things like this too. And that's super hard. That's why if you, if you look at 10,000 TEDx talks, 9,500 of them are the same because it's scary to get up and do one. Yeah. But 500 of them, well, I never heard that before. And then you say that person's an idiot and you delete it. Or you say, now I believe. You taught me something new. I want to be people like that. And that pioneering spirit the assertion making, that's all artists do. It's not a craft. Yeah. It's the art of making an assertion that I didn't know before. And now that I know it, you've changed me. You said earlier, but I'm not Banksy, but I'm not fill in the blank, fill in the blank. What about the people who are at home saying, yeah, but like I, I'm, I, what do I have that's original to say? What, what, like what's my corner of the yeah, world? Yeah, and you haven't, I don't think you've tried hard enough. That if you, if you say, I'm, I, I have writer's block, I say, show me your bad writing. Once you show me 50,000 words of bad writing, then you can tell me you have writer's block. But first, do some bad writing. Because over time, your bad writing will get less bad. That if, you know, the, the magic of the DSLR is for 300 bucks, everyone has a state-of-the-art object. But you're a lousy photographer. And you know why you're a lousy photographer? Because you didn't take enough pictures yet. Show me 10,000 pictures. Put the pictures in the world one at a time. Listen to how they're resonating with the people you're seeking to serve. Take more pictures. Take more pictures. It doesn't cost anything. Then come back to me and tell me you have no photographic talent. But first, do the work. That is gold. If you are 
listening to this, you need to hit that 30 second backward button if you're on the podcast right now, you need to play that. I think I, I once did a photography book, it was called The Best Cameras, the one that's with you, and it was the first book on mobile, mobile yeah. photography. And it said in there, that's the dirtiest secret in photography, is that you have to take a lot of pictures to get your work and to get to find your work. And that is a thing, um, just did a, a great, co-created something with Apple called Photolab, where it's, this, is, um, this program is in all 500 Apple stores worldwide every day. And one of the, the, the things that we're trying to cement in there is that the difference between a pro and an amateur is that a pro sees something and they'll take 10 pictures of it versus you just see the Grand Canyon, you walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you take a picture. And you wonder why the pro, I mean, there's, sure, there's other distinctions, but you wonder why the pro got a better photograph than you did. And it's because the pro hiked down, took 10 pictures from down below, took 15 from above, took pictures of their friends, themselves. And, and I just love the, the concept of work. I think it resonates with the people who are actually committed to it. Is there a way that that separates the, the people who are um, allowed into the club? Is this the like people like us do things like this? Is that is 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 doing work a reasonable divider? Because the people who've done it, the people who haven't. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of dividers. One of them is slowly fading, which is the divider of what you look like, where you came from. It's totally unreasonable, but it's true in a lot of places, particularly in photography with gender and things like that. Fortunately, I think that we're going to see that fade. But there is a tiny group of lucky people, a tiny group of people who their first video went viral, a tiny group of people who from the day their blog went up, it just kept going and going. I wasn't in that group when it came to my writing. I did 120 books as a book packager before I became an author. I wasn't in that group with my blog. 20 people read my blog every day for months or years before it was 200, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then I got lucky because Fast Company let me be a columnist. But that luck happened because I had already written 50,000 words, 100,000 words before that occurred. So yeah, I think you can look at people, I look at you and say, this guy has been working generously for decades yeah. at this. And people don't notice until you, ask the la until you add the last zero. And I go, whoa, look at that. Shake Shack, right? Yeah. Well, talk to Danny Meyer, ask him how long Shake Shack took. <laughs> Right, the 10-year overnight success. Right? Maybe 20, yeah. Probably 20. Um, all right, I want, I want to read another uh, chapter title. And that's around price. Okay. So I think this is, a, this is an area. Yeah, I'm, I like this one <laughs> okay. a lot. This is an area that I think screws up a lot of, even startups, like how we, how we price our product. And if certainly if you're an individual, I told a story about realizing that, oh my gosh, if I charge this much, I literally only need like 30 clients a year to, to make a great living. Oh my gosh. So then it became about price. And I think people are two things. One, afraid of talking about price and experimenting with it. And two, they're just, they're ignorant about it. They don't know. So to me, there's a bunch of wisdom here around pricing. And if you could like put your arms around that for us about how you talked about it in the book. Okay, so I'll start in a surprising place. If you're selling to businesses, begin by understanding it's not the person's money. It's their boss's 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 money. So their engagement with money isn't the same as yours. If you're imagining how you would feel paying $5,000 for a photo shoot, that's the wrong question. This person is going to go to their boss with a story. And that story might be, all photographers are the same. I got this one for $500 less. If that's the story you want to give them, be prepared to be the cheapest. 
But there's a different story you can give them, which is this trade show is super important to us and I managed to pay double. So we will never have to worry about whether the photography comes out all right or not because I got the best person. Well, that story is actually more appealing to them because that story shows their boss they put the effort in. So if you are the one and only, if you are the specialist at shooting trade show booths in Tucson, Arizona, there's going to be a waiting list for you if it's true, right? Because it's worth paying extra for that. So low price is the hiding place of the average creator that you say, well, I can't afford to be better because I'm the cheapest. Well, the opposite of that is I'm the best so I can afford to charge extra for people who want the best. And yeah. that is the key. The story they are telling themselves is, if I am paying extra, it must be better. I'm the kind of person who wants better, so therefore I insist on paying extra. And I don't think it's immoral to bring this emotional labor and this effort to somebody who wants to tell themselves the story they like paying extra. In fact, if you get a choice of your minimum viable market, why would you pick people who like paying less? Just pick people who like paying more. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but it's literally like it's the way I talked about it is that it's like it is almost exactly the same amount of effort to sell something for a hundred dollars as it is for a thousand. It's just a different buyer. Yeah. So uh, put that lens on the, the 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 people who are listening right now. Put that lens on it. Well, if you are going to do the hundred versus a thousand, or, or, or reframe it as you want. No, okay. Perfect. Please understand. You're not a greedy megalomaniac. You're gonna, if you sell one-fifth as many, you're still gonna make twice as much money, right? You can do the math, hit pause, do the math. <laughs> Which means you're gonna get turned down 80% of the time, right? One-fifth. Fine. So when you get turned down, you, what you just heard was not that you're inferior, that you're a bad person. What you just heard is, I'm not the kind of person that likes to spend $1,000 on this. Great, congratulations. Here's the phone number of That's someone who likes does. to sell for 100. Yeah. Great. I'm, I don't hate you and you don't hate me. You just want something I don't sell. Right? So if you wander in to a fancy boutique and say, hi, I'd like to buy a $9 pair of sneakers, they shouldn't hate on you. They should just say the pay less is six doors down. We don't sell $9 sneakers. We sell $900 sneakers. And when you're ready to buy $900 sneakers, we'll be here. And if you can accept that, then selling $900 sneakers and making them worth 1000 is a fine way to spend your day. That's, I think, a brilliant, that's another thing you have to rewind and listen to again. And I think that, that creators get that wrong over and over and over again. And that's the sort of, if you're trying to make something for everyone, you're making it for no one. The same is true with price. I have found that in small, and again, what you ultimately, I think, realize, this took, took, took me a while, is that the, the sea of people that you're going to encounter is not that huge. And there's a lot of crossover. And for every person that you are wildly polite and engaged and positive around, but you steer them to somebody else. If, if they say, oh, it's 10 grand, oh, I, I've got five. And you say, no problem, I can introduce you to a lot of $5,000, fill in the blank. And they're like, but I really want you. And I'm like, oh, no, sorry, I'm a 10. Right. <laughs> and let me introduce you to a five. And what people get hung up on, and what I'd like to hear your comment about this as soon as I finish my little narrative here, which is, but when I get 10, I'll come hire you, just do it for five now. And what I have espoused uh, is that if you become that person, right. you will, when they get 10 grand, 
they're, they're going to the person who was 25, right. and then they're going to offer 10 to Because that that's person. the kind of person they are. They've, they've categorized you as that and person. And they've categorized themselves yeah. as the bargain seeker, Yeah. right? So the challenge in that setting, as you've pointed out, is that once you lower your price to that person, you have signaled to them, I'm the kind of supplier that likes to work with people who negotiate and hassle about the price. And if that gives you pleasure, call me, right? <laughs> yeah. And it also makes them at some level disappointed because they're thinking, I could have gotten them for four. Right. And if you pick your customers right, if the pricing is a signaling strategy for them, they want you to charge more. And there are plenty of fields where this is true. Contemporary art, photography, public speaking. Yeah. That's what the way it works is, oh, boss, you're going to be so excited. He said yes. Not, I got a bargain, but they said yes. That's what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. The challenge is the acting as if and the getting the momentum. So one of the ways around it for people, for example, for photography is have two kinds of clients. Clients where you work for free and clients where you work for a lot. So if you do photography for zoos, nonprofits, kids' schools, et cetera, that's filling your portfolio to the edges, you can then look a corporation in the eye and say, I'm $10,000 a day. And they say, well, yeah, because those are charities. When you start a charity, please call me. And so now I've divided the world into different buckets. And that's totally appropriate. Another way to do it, you know, Shepherd Fair, if you want an original Shepherd Ferry, it's $80,000. But every month he puts 100 lithos on his thing for $800. Yeah. And you can sell him on eBay for a profit. He doesn't care. That's all good because he's put this into the world treating different people differently. Yeah. But if you're going to treat different people differently, you got to have rules because otherwise everyone's going to feel like you're not treating them fairly. It's a really interesting distinction. I like to say work free or full price, but stay out of the middle. Yeah. And you know, when someone's asking you to sort of negotiate down, that's when you want to send them to somebody else. I think it is the pricing psychology is fascinating. And I could talk to you about it forever, but I want to move on to something that is, I wanted to get to it, but you just gave me the perfect door. And that is, it's not about sort of them hating you right. because you cost 10 grand or or you didn't negotiate or you want to negotiate, it's, you know, separate the creator from the work. You did a beautiful job of summing that up at the end of the book. So I think that's also a big hang up for the people who are watching and listening. And give us a way to think about it that, that deliver us, please, <laughs> from this challenge that we have. You know, if, if Jerry Seinfeld gives a, a stand-up performance in a club in New York and no one laughs, it could be because he's having a bad night. Or it could be because everyone in the audience is from an Italian tour group and doesn't speak a word of English. He shouldn't beat himself up if it's the second one. Yeah. They just speak a different language. Yeah. So when you go to somebody and say, this is what I make, and they get angry at you, or in your head you think they're angry at you, that's not really what's happening. What's happening is they have their own noise in their head. They know what they know. They want what they want. They believe what they believe. And you can dance with that. And they maybe want to be seen by you having those feelings. Or maybe you just want to disengage. But it has nothing to do with your work. You're the human. Right? It's the not, they're not saying, how dare you even breathe the oxygen on the same planet as me? What they're saying is, it's not for me. And they're just not polite enough to say it that way. And you, your own worst boss, are busy beating yourself up 
for being inferior as opposed to saying, who does want this? Who does want to dance with what I've made? And then you have to be honest enough to say, you know what? It's not that good. I'm going to go make something better. That's a huge, I think, a reframing. If you've had that self-doubt, which I, I can say I have and I believe we all have at some point, there's this reconciliation between when you put something out there in the world and it's crickets. What's your response? Was it not good enough? Was it, was it about me? Or did I do something that was disingenuous? Was it that I serve it to the wrong? Did I serve table four's food to table six? And they uh -huh. got there like, I did not order the chicken cacciatore. Like all of those things are possibly true and we have to fix the, the, the internal self-talk, uh, which is a problem for this cross-section of people that I think we've decided to serve. Right, and the, but the good news is you and I will never run out of stuff to talk about because it's not like we say, okay, done. Check, I figured, because I figured that one. Because it's so deep, it's, just, it's there for a long time. You just have to dance with it. You can't make it go away. So what I promised you know, I would handcuff you to the chair if I could. I'd promise tactics, to respect. Tactics, bring it on. Okay, so I want to get some tactics, and I know you don't love talking about them, which is part of the reason I, I want you to go there, but there are a set of habits that have created the books that you've put out there. There are a set of habits that, whether they're daily habits or work habits or how you think about things, help us. I have never really heard you t talk about like your routines and... I think it's, be, I don't know, I'm not even gonna fill in the blank for you, but can you give us something? Like, what does it look like? And I understand that people, like, these are potentially very esoteric things, but I hope that they help other people understand what's possible. You can actually craft your own thing and you're not beholden to what your phone says the first thing in the morning when you pick it up. But what are some of your personal habits for creating? Um, here are the ones that I think are, Universal. Uh, well, don't tell me everything about everybody because then no, you tell no, me nothing about no. Habits of mind that I think are applicable to other people, okay. right? Okay. The fact that I'm a vegetarian, probably irrelevant, and I don't think becoming a vegetarian will make you a better writer. Uh, Fair. Neil Gaiman said that when he feels stuck, what he needs to do is get bored. Because if he gets bored enough, he invents something to keep himself entertained. Okay. That's how he gets unstuck. So I've tried very hard to eliminate all the things that I can that make me feel like I am busy and productive when I'm not actually productive. So I don't go to meetings and I don't have a television. So right there I have seven or eight hours every day that most people don't have. Then I don't use Facebook and I don't use Twitter. That's another hour and a half not to mention the drama that goes with it. So already I start every day with an eight hour head start over almost everybody else. And then what I've chosen to do is pick places or digital spaces that are sacred in the sense that I only enter them with the intent of coming out with a trophy, or a, 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 with a gift, with something to share. So, I'm not going to open this word processor unless I'm there to write a certain kind of writing. And for me, with my blog, I was on TypePad for 15 years. The type, <laughs> the TypePad user interface made me a better writer because if it opened, I knew why it was there. I knew why I was there. I knew what this was for. And so these practices, every few years, I 
invent a uniform for myself that I wear at work. Because if I put on the smock, if I put on the lab coat, I just got one the other day, the new one. If I put that on, there's a reason. We're here to do stuff. And surgeons are great at this. They wear a mask, they wear gloves, they're like bank robbers, except they, they, they don't just like say, yeah, I'm having a coffee, okay, I'll do some surgery now. There's this process yeah. that be, makes you a surgeon. Yeah. So, when, and salespeople, Zig famously, uh, with some guy who's bothering him and finally sat down, and they said, I'm not here to sell you anything. And Zig's like, then why are you wasting my time? If you're here to sell me something, sell me something. Well. Say to yourself, I'm here to get better at my craft. I'm here to get better at photography. I'm going to shoot 400 pictures of this tulip. And I'm not going to stop until there's 400. We do reps in the gym. We should do reps with the camera. And so for me, if someone, you know, if an editor comes back to me with a book that I've handed to them with comments, I don't get all defensive. I say, thank you. Can you believe that this person cared enough in this moment yeah. to say something to you for you. And as soon as I say thank you, I'm wearing a different hat, right? Whereas Amazon reviews haven't read one in five years. I don't think anyone should read their Amazon reviews or their Yelp reviews. I'm never gonna write that book again. Why are you giving me feedback on the book? It's done, I'm never gonna write it again. I have never met an author who's better at writing because they read their one-star reviews. What those one-star reviews say is, this book wasn't for me. Yeah. Thanks for letting us know. We don't need to read anything else. You just announced it's not for you. Okay, get it. Thank you. And so if I'm asking for advice from people, which I like as better as a word than feedback, I'm asking the right people who are going to give me advice in the right spirit. I'm not walking up to a stranger on the corner, interrupting them and saying, and what do you think of this? Because it's not for them. Yeah. And they're not trained in how to give me good advice. It's so obvious when you think about it that way. I love it. Sorry, keep talking. No, no, I mean, so all of these things just... are the practice of someone who calls himself a professional. And we expect it from surgeons. But somehow we expect that writers will just drink a lot, not dress very well, and you know, complain about writer's block. That's not what Isaac Asimov taught me. Isaac wrote 400 books as a published author. And he wrote 400 books by getting up every morning and typing until noon because he was a professional. So generally when I see people who, the reason I don't share you know, what I had for breakfast is because that puts me in a different place. And what I'm trying to argue is I'm in the same place, but I'm trying to do it as a professional using these tools for a reason. This book is not me. I wrote a book. If you don't like the book, it doesn't mean you don't like me. It means you didn't like the book. And if I didn't do that, I could never write another word. Because the thought that there are tens of thousands of people who will now announce they don't like me, I'm not up for that. I can't handle that. So you just gave me a thing that I haven't heard from you on any other place, which is like, this is a process. So you, I've been reading your, your blog for, how many years have you been doing that now? Well, off and on, like 20. You had to be one of the first people on, on that platform, and certainly one of the last. Didn't like WordPress buy them? And, and, yeah, it's yeah. a long story, but I, I moved, <laughs> and now it's at Seth's stop blog. Okay. What does it mean to, to write every day? Like, you sit down. How can you not do that? Why wouldn't everyone do that? I don't understand. It's free. You can put someone else's name on it. The fact that 
I know that tomorrow a blog is going out makes me a better thinker and a better human today because I know I'm going to write something tomorrow that has my name on it that's going to stick around about my view of the world. Why wouldn't everyone want to be able to do that even if no one read it? I would definitely write my blog if no one read it because this chronicling of what did I notice today helps me see the world for free. And I get to feel like I'm producing something even if I don't get paid for it, even if I don't have to argue with a publisher or an editor. It's just here. I thought of this. Use it if you want to. I've never once had a blog post win the internet. I've never had one of my posts go viral and be a hit. Some have more traffic than others, but it looks like this. It's never like this. And I think that's great. Because if this happened to me, I would be tempted to try to make it happen again. Right? Top 10 ways to increase your creative performance. I share my secrets in this exclusive post. <laughs> right? But I don't want to do that because that's not what the blog is for. You just um, captured probably 10 million blog posts, but like almost probably word for word. I love it. All right. So the book, This Is Marketing, you talked about a couple of the other classes. Talk about the longer class. Uh, the, 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 so there's the Alt-MBA, yeah, which is my flagship thing at altmba.com, and that's 30-day intensive. People in 45 countries have taken it so far. We're up to 2,600 alumni. It changes people's lives. It's really cool. I'm not in it. There's no video. There's no secret content. That's not what it is. It's got coaches and video conferences and cohorts of people who become friends for life. So that's our flagship in the sense of if you're enrolled in that leveling up and you want to commit to it, yep. we, we have a place for you. And then uh, the marketing seminar, which starts in January 2019 again, is this uh, community discussion board that's only for the people who have signed up. There's a video of me every two days, seven minutes long or so, and then I give you a challenge. And then the whole group shares their work and comments on their work. So when it's up and running, there's a new post every minute, every three minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People, and it, you can't fall behind because it's always happening. Wow. And it unfolds over... 50 videos over 100 days, but it, we keep it open for 200 days. And what people come in saying, how can I find a tactic to sell more fur coats? And they leave with this whole student-teacher mindset of service and maybe a different project. But it's the connections between and among. I'm just there to start a fire. It's that. that that's the future of education as far as I'm concerned. I think. Yeah. Free video online is going to stick around because it's powerful. Yeah. But if you're going to pay for it, I think it's going to involve interactions with other people to get you to be momentarily uncomfortable on your way to being better. Beautiful. Congratulations on the book. Thank this you, is sir. Marketing, Mr. Seth Godin, your legend. Uh, super honored this to have you, so have you on the show. I, you didn't realize that you're handcuffed and we're going to talk for another two hours. <laughs> we're going to turn the cameras on and talk for another two hours while I got them here in New York. No, I just, huge thank you. Um, inspiration to so many. Appreciate Thanks. you being on the show, man. Thanks for everything. And for everybody at home, you know where to get Seth. Uh, pick this up. It is a gem. And thanks for tuning in. See you again, hopefully, tomorrow. Go make a ruckus. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to 
what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.